There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon a 27 year veteran of the nypd it's really been an eventful last couple of days this case uh of course the gilgo case the lisk l-i-s-k long island serial killer case has really caught the attention of not just the new york metropolitan area but of the whole nation um and one of the big questions, of course, in this case for everyone is who is Rex Ewerman? Who is this man, this six foot four, six foot five inch, 280 to 300 pound male white from Massapequa Park, Long Island, a middle to upper middle class neighborhood? A man who works in Manhattan, has his own rather small boutique, I guess you would say, architectural firm, and has worked in Manhattan for close to 30 years, or maybe even more than 30 years, but yet has these secrets. He's married. He has two grown adult children that live in his home with he and his wife. His, his house looks unkempt, an unkempt house for an architect. It just, to me, doesn't fit in so well, you know. Um, those are one of the, some of the questions that I asked Dr. Joni Johnston last night, the great forensic psychologist. Did that tell something about his personality that... He's an architect, yet if you look at his own home, it really left a lot to be desired. Some of the things we're going to find out that we've looked at, that the police have looked out, premeditation. What type of premeditation was involved in this case? And we're going to cover all of that tonight. We're going to answer a lot of your questions tonight because we feel that this case, again, it's when the first person, uh, Brainard Barnes, I believe it was, uh, Maureen Brainard Barnes went missing, was 2007. So we're talking 16 years ago. And really this case first started in December 2010. So a good close to 13 years ago, 12 and a half years ago, that a police officer from the Suffolk County Police on a training mission in Gilgo by the Dunes with his dog, with his canine, came upon some human remains. And that is where it all started. That's where this case all started. And one of the brilliant things about this case, and you'll hear it and you'll hear us talk about it, is that as the frustration with this case built 
with the families of the victims, as it built with the community, as it built with the online community, people that, you know, super sleuths who've never investigated a case in their life as they were making all kinds of suggestions of who could be the perp, who did this, and why aren't they doing this? Why aren't the police doing that? Well, again, we're going to see why. Some of those uh, questions are going to be answered by us tonight. Why didn't they do certain things? And why didn't they have this information earlier? One of the big reasons is that technology flew by. It not only caught up to investigation, but surpassed it and flew past it, such that the technology with DNA is unbelievable. Cell phone technology is unbelievable. Computer technology and the electronic stamps that we have, that we've, if you follow true crime and you follow the Burdock case in South Carolina, electronic evidence is what was his undoing, was Alec Murdoch's undoing. And some people can't understand that, but electronic evidence is very, very, very powerful evidence. And of course, the generations of DNA that the technology has just sped by the investigative prowess of police departments, of the FBI, of district attorney's offices. And this technology, to put it mildly, is one of the biggest advancements in science probably in the last 100 years. Investigative genetic genealogy. Okay, guys, that, that's basically my opening monologue. We're going to cover a lot of really important and a lot of interesting stuff tonight. But let me first invite to the show a frequent co-host of mine, professor at Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut, retired NYPD sergeant, law degree, the very affable <laughs> Mike Geary. Mike, welcome to the show tonight. Hey, Billy. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Good evening. Well, it's always great to have you on, Mike. You know, so many people, the big questions, of course, who is this guy? Who is Rex Uerman? Who is this man, this six foot five inch, 300 pound male white architect? And how does he live this double life? Father, architect member of the community in a Massapequa Park, Long Island. But uh, he has these really, really dark, dark secrets. Yeah, Billy, it's everything that a good murder mystery would be made of that you'd see on TV, some sort of fictionalized, um, you know, episode of uh, some TV show. But the thing is, all of those fictitious shows are always based on certain real life happenstances. And truth is always stranger than fiction. You have a man with a respectable home in a respectable neighborhood, a family man, as you say. He's, uh, other than being a very large person that would, might look like a former football player, he's uh, a family man who's got a job in Manhattan. He commutes on the Long Island Railroad every day into Penn Station. He's like thousands and th tens of thousands of people every single day. And he's known his neighbors 
for his whole life. He's lived there in that house and in that neighborhood. He knows, you know, that area of the county like the back of his hand. And, um, you know, he's but beyond beyond or behind that thin veneer of civility and, you know, uh, and attractability, uh, because he does seem like a, a fairly normal uh, male. You have a heart of darkness and in his heart, he, he wants to hurt and control and, and rape young women. And that is very scary because there he there's no outward manifestation. He's not an angry young man. He doesn't run around threatening people. He doesn't have a, a, a criminal record where he's been in prison a number of times. He doesn't hang out with a, in a gang. You know, he's not young. He does no outward manifestations of, of any kind of clues to, to the, what he has hiding that in his soul. And that's what makes him a kind of person like him very scared to track down because he seems to be like the last person a homicide detective like yourself or Phil really would think would be the killer. You know, Mike, we were discussing the case off the air. Yeah. And one of the things that I, anyone that is a true crime aficionado or true crime fan, I would encourage you because this case is by no means over in any stretch of the imagination. This is a 32 page document that is available to anyone if you'd like. And it is the bail application for Rex Uriman. And in this 32 page document, it outlines the case that the Suffolk County District Attorney has against Rex Uriman and the evidence they had or they have and when and where they obtained it. So much if you watched the press conference the other day when the arrest was um, announced, uh, District Attorney Tierney, uh, coming from the NYPD, I cringed when he was giving up the entire case to the public, to would-be defense attorneys, to the families of the victims, to the family of the perpetrators, to would-be criminals or serial killers who are sitting in state prisons perhaps and are wondering, how did the police capture this guy? What is the technology? Now they know, because he told them everything. He told them, this is how we did it. I cringe at that. I just don't think you need to tell the public that. And let it be told that we had probable cause. We have lots of evidence. And we put the evidence together that included 300 subpoenas, X amount of search warrants, and we have this amount of physical evidence. That's all you need to tell. You know, he did. He spoke for 23 minutes, District Attorney Tierney. I felt I, I didn't like it. Coming from the NYPD, coming from the culture of you keep investigative secrets secret among the police and among the investigators. What good does it do you to tell the press and to tell the public how you arrived at these conclusions? I think it's counterproductive. Yeah, Billy, it's terribly counterproductive. You're right. Um, I was always taught in law school, you know, when you're representing anyone, civil or criminal lawsuit as a prosecutor or as a defendant, you play your cards close to your vest. You don't only give out enough information that you need to give out that that you need to or the judge requests you to. That's it. Um, laying it all out in the manner in which the district attorney did. Uh, he said a lot of things that may help the criminal defendant here, Rex Hurman, uh, maybe ask and maybe successfully 
uh, request a change of venue to a different county in the state. Also, he, he said some things that may not actually be relevant, and you're putting it out there as if it is a clue or as if it was used in the case uh, to track down Herman, and it may taint a jury pool. So I, I was... I was very troubled too, but I understand, you know, he, he's, he's, he is a, he's an elected official and he does want to brag about this because, you know, 18 months ago they set up this task force and, and they've got the serial killer. And, and obviously, you know, and you want to congratulate people and you want to let the public know that you did a great job and, and, you know, any pressures that, that may have been put on you, you successfully had a fantastic task force multi-agency task force for 18 months and they, they they are happy with the person they got as the suspected killer but he went i think a, a overboard i think he was prideful and it, it was overboard and i don't think it did uh, the case or him uh, uh, a a service i think it, it actually hurts the case absolutely i want to play a little bit of this from abc news Get the that media. arrest and the not guilty plea in the shocking serial killings on New York's Long Island that date back to more than a decade. Take a look at this man, Rex Hewerman, married, 59 years old, father of two. Police say that he works as an architect in Manhattan. Well, he's the one that's been charged in three of the Gilgo Beach murders, and he just appeared in court. His court-appointed attorney entering a not guilty plea on his behalf. A forensic team searching his home, a source close to the investigation actually telling us that this all came down to phone data and that the suspect's address had been on their radar for some time. That Long Island home located in Massapequa Park, that's not far from where the victim's bodies were actually found on the South Shore. Fears of a serial killer in this area actually started back in 2010 when a woman's body was discovered there in Gilgo Beach. Then bodies of seven more women and a man and a toddler were found in the same general area over the next year. Joining me now, former FBI agent Richard Frankel, who actually worked on this case during his time with the FBI. So, Richard, we're learning now more about how DNA was collected from the suspect, um, from these images that were shown in court. I want you to take a look. I know you've probably already seen a few of these. They actually snagged the suspect's pizza, pizza box that was shoved into a Manhattan trash can. And then there's another picture here of the pizza crusts that were used to collect his DNA. So um, clearly once they got their leads, uh, they jumped right into action to identify their suspect. What do you think about this? Oh, great work. I mean, this this is, you know, uh, you, you know, you kind of say this is 101 police work. Um, uh, this is this is the what law enforcement does on a daily basis that you don't hear about from all the other cases. But in this case, it is working perfectly. They get the information that um, uh, or, or they or they need the DNA information. They need to get evidence and they go about it using all of the tools of the trade. They're allowed to go collect, uh, um, you know, throwing away garbage. Uh, they're using warrants where they need to do warrants. They're tracking down the phones. They're using the analytics. They're talking with the um, phone companies, trying to get whatever data they can to show where the person was and uh, what connections were made between the phone that the suspect was using and who, in fact, was that suspect talking to? Meaning, was he talking to the victims, to the victim's family? They're able to 
kind of locate where the phones were. Again, I, I think this is um, the, the perfect uh, uh, connection and correlation between what law enforcement does in these long-term, very hard investigations. You know, Mike, one of the things, and we spoke about it before, and I saw someone in the chat, uh, I think uh, John was talking about, they had the car uh, 10 years ago um, that they call it a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche. However, that evidence did not become apparent or how important it was become apparent until they matched the cell phone information to that car. And in 2022 is when they put all of this together. So was this underneath their nose and did they miss it? I would say no, because they didn't connect the cell phone. So how did they know this car and this person was, was the suspect? And I, I mean, it's very simple now when you can read this 32-page bail report, and the case is synopsized. 13 years of investigation is synopsized in 32 pages. I don't think it's that simple. And everyone is thinking this, and we'll lay it out there a little more uh, detailed later on. But let me just thank Andy the Gabby Cabby. Andy the Gabby Cabby, thank you for the $10 super sticker. It just shows you you will always slip up, and even if it takes years, you will be caught. Thanks to science and evidence collection, Bill, well done, and congrats on 50,000 subscribers. Andy the Gabby Cabby, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. One of our friends from across the pond. So, Mike, let's pick up on that. Uh, let's talk about, you know, first of all, the technology and how far it's come. And this evidence, now it seems like, oh, gee, they screwed up. Now let's, the chronology wasn't that simple. Yeah, Billy, we talked about this. I thank the person in the, in the chat room for bringing this issue up because you and I talked about this 10 minutes before going on the air. Uh, you've led homicide investigations for like a decade. Um, I never actually led one. I was always like the first responder on the scene kind of deal. So I don't know all the ins and outs of actually leading it. And I asked you about that avalanche. And, you know, it, it seemed to me reading this, obviously, that why, all the pieces were there. Why did they just see them for what they were? But the truth is, and like you talked about it, you know, you've got, you know, one little piece of evidence, uh, the avalanche, that's suspicious, but they didn't have the cell phone data for years. So they have a Chevy avalanche in 2010. They they don't actually see, no one actually sees that, that uh, poor lady, her name is... Um, God, I'm sorry here. Um, the first lady who disappeared. Um, well, and they, uh, where is it? I'm sorry, right here. Yeah, it's uh, Amber Costello. I'm sorry, Amber Costello. You know, nobody actually saw who she left with and didn't identify the uh, car as an avalanche. Previously, the day before, they saw a big guy driving a Chevy avalanche. So they, you know, it's it's important. And Mike, Mike in that in that incident, he came to her home. Mm -hmm. Right, he came to her home. They had a ruse set up where she would take the money from him, and then her someone posing as a boyfriend, boyfriend. would act like, get out of this house. And, and they basically chased him out of the house. Right. And he called her back later on wanting a refund of his money or Credit. for her to make good on the promise here. Right. So that was the time when they saw the Chevy Avalanche but no one put it together right. that this 
was the perpetrator till 2022. Right. So is that, can we say that that was overlooked or was it was not as obvious until yeah. they put the, the, the burner phone information together with this information? Yeah, Billy, if they had had a, a, a um, the, the license plate, uh, that would be different. But they didn't have the license plate. And Chevy Avalanche, uh, you know, it's a fairly was a fairly popular make and model. And so, therefore, I would say that, uh, you know, the police can be excused on that one because they didn't could, they didn't have all the pieces to put it together and say, aha, we think we got this guy. This is our prime suspect. They had the Chevy Avalanche. It took a long time to get all of that cell phone data. As you read this, these 32 pages, you realize he had multiple cell phones uh, and burner phones. He had multiple uh, um, accounts uh, accessing pornography, you know, and many people have these sorts of things, but it doesn't mean that they are killers. It just means that they're doing whatever they're doing. But having to put that all together and Hurman really seems to come into the spotlight, um, you know, just a year and a half ago, no, not maybe 14 months ago. And then from that point on, they were able to then, you know, you, you're looking at all the cell phone data and you're like, okay, where does Rex Hurman live? Where does he work? Okay, now let's go back and look at the cell phone data again. It's not like some sort of like Sherlock Holmes story. There's tons of data. And you have you have to have someone analyzing it and seeing commonalities between people missing and cell phones being used. Remember, they're looking at cell phone usage near Penn Station. They're looking at cell phone usage in Midtown Manhattan. They're looking at cell phone usage on, in Massapequa, Long Island. Imagine how many cell phones are being used at any given time when this uh, Rex Hurman is making these really awful, obscene calls to uh, the family members. It takes a while to track all this down. So um, the police should be congratulated for being able to do all of that analytics that they did in so short a time once they really got the, the, the cell phone data and they matched up with the DNA data. Well, Mike, the other thing is, is we go back 13 years and cell phone technology, period, mm -hmm. wasn't what it is today. Now think of law enforcement searching it, doing something called, for example, geofencing. That technology has, hasn't been around that long. That's right. How did they even find the cell phone records after all these years? When you think about that, it's mm -hmm. it's amazing. How, did, how long do these companies, do the carriers keep right. these records, you know? And how some of long? them were destroyed and they had to go by the, uh, the, the billing records so they didn't even have the cell tower data. And so put that make puts a wrinkle in it because, you know, if, if you're watching the CSI shows or things like that, and or you're watching even some of the, the really excellent ones on TV um, nowadays, um, and they're they're based on true stories and there's and they're going through it, they cut out an awful lot of of chatter and false leads, and you don't even hear about it. So if you're watching these TV shows. They wrap it up within an hour. They're very involved. Keith Morrison is one of the better guys you see out there um, uh, doing these shows. They're fantastic. But they boil it all down to the essences. And then you see, wow, okay, they, this is how it was done. But they, in that hour, they, they, they 
that you don't have the time to cover all of the chatter, all of the static, all of the other amazing amounts of time wasting on leads that proved to be false leads that went nowhere. Um, it's it's amazing to how when how the technology developed, thankfully, and they were they were able with whatever records, either business records or cell phone records, were still available. How they were able to put it all together and actually analyze patterns of phone calls from you know Midtown Manhattan, Penn Station, Middletown, uh, Massapequa to uh, the families and checking up on the families and sending them text messages. That is amazing. And that's something that people uh, don't realize how difficult that is. Absolutely. Folks, this is um, the three of these girls um, that were actually um, Rex was charged with uh, in the indictment and was uh, indicted by a grand jury for Melissa Bartolemi, Amber Lynn Costello, and Megan Waterman. Now, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, they expect him to be also charged with that case too, but at this time he hasn't been. They're just trying to solidify that case so they could bring that into the indictment or, or further charge him with that. If if he's convicted in these three, he, he's still never going to see the light of day. He'll get life without parole. However, all the families, of course, and <clears throat> there's never closure in a case like this, that someone is arrested is great for the family. It's great for the memories of the victims. And it's great for the Long Island community, which I think for thir- you know the better part of 12 and a half, 13 years, was sort of walking on eggshells, wondering, who is this person? Is this person ever going to get caught? Has this person stopped? Will he? Is he in prison? All of those answers are now. All of those questions are now answered. But one of the other problems is like, can they connect him to these other cases? We don't know that. Uh, did he, in fact? commit all of these other cases. Again, we don't know that. When the evidence is 12 to 13 years old, very, very difficult. We're amazed that evidence survived this long, that evidence was preserved by the police departments and kept in locations where it needed to be to preserve the evidence. Don't forget, and we'll get more into it later on, three hairs were removed from all single hair from each body of the victims that belonged to Rex Ureman's wife. Mm -hmm. One hair on one of the bodies of one of the victims belonged to Rex. Now, when they talk about, we just did this story and we, I always use the word and people laugh at it, how to surreptitiously acquire DNA. And when they spoke about getting the DNA off the pizza. It wasn't off the pizza box. It was off the pizza crust that Rex left in the box. He probably chewed on it, left his saliva on it. That's what the lab technician swabs. That's the DNA that they got surreptitiously off that pizza. There's another time where an undercover police officer of the Suffolk County Police 
actually took about eight or ten bottles from Rex Ewerman's house and swabbed those for DNA and obtained both the wife's DNA and uh, that excuse me, the wife's DNA, and that was matched to the hairs that they that they collected from the bodies. Now, Rex's DNA again was taken from those uh, surreptitiously. We'll use that word again because we like to teach you guys new words. Um, from the pizza and that matched up to the hair that was recovered on the body that is textbook what we could call low cards principle of exchange exchanging evidence he brought that evidence the, the the hair from his wife's body either the victims were killed in his house or that evidence that transfer evidence his wife's hair and his own hair was transferred onto the bodies in either the transportation of them or the dumping of them in the Gilgo Beach area. In any event, that's what's known as transfer evidence, trace evidence. And that is unbelievable. That evidence was kept for over 12 years and did not have the technology to identify it in 2010 using mitochondrial DNA, uh, which I think was in the system back then was um, a polymerase chain reaction, I think, or short tandem repeats is what they do now. That's a DNA technique. And now the technique they have, which would we spoke about, SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphism, which is the way uh, has one million markers and is how they're building now uh, investigative genetic genealogy. But I'm not going to give a lesson on that because I'm not qualified to do that. But all of this stuff is amazing. And technology is what helped as well as unbelievable detective work. But technology, no doubt, helped in solving this case. Mike? Yeah, Billy, uh, I think some people think that, if they, you know, you're watching these TV shows like CSI and stuff like that. And I don't mean to pick on any particular show or maybe even, you know, um, you know, law and order or something like that they get they'll come up with a fingerprint and they'll bring it back to their their headquarters and they'll run it through machine aphis automatic fingerprint identification system you know and they'll have this machine that looks like an old xerox copier from the 1970s or something and they'll run it through and flashing pictures of suspects will appear in different you know very poses from different uh, correctional institutions and then boom they got a match and it's like Okay, we got this humongous fingerprint and then the person's and the person's photo, you know, mugshot. That's not how it happens. You know, uh, if you get a piece of DNA, you get a uh, victim's, I'm sorry, you get a perpetrator's DNA. It could be blood. It could be hair. It could be skin. It could be saliva. You know, it could be urine, you know, semen, things like that, uh, sweat. Um, and if they are not in the system, if they've never had their DNA put into the system, you can't get a hit, you know, a match. And so same thing with fingerprints. If you've never been fingerprinted before um, and you get and uh, you commit a burglary, it's going to be awful hard to connect you to it with a fingerprint because uh, your fingerprint doesn't exist in the FBI, you know, nationwide system. You know, you and I, Billy, if we committed a criminal act with our, with our, and our, we, they gave, got a fingerprint, they'd be able to find us within 24 hours. If, if that, it probably wouldn't even take that long because our fingerprints are on the record. 
But this stuff, when you read this 32-page uh, application, the bail application, it's amazing the lengths that, to which that, that uh, task force went over the course of many months. And if once they submitted that DNA and they, it, um, and they got their final res result that matched, you know, Herman with the, uh, the pizza crust to the, the hair, that took months. It's not like it took, you know, overnight, you know, or a fingerprint, which you might be able to match in an hour and a half to two hours. No, this stuff took months and months and months. And it took so long. Part of it also was that the technology wasn't there early on. And if it was, a few things had been different. Our technology had been different back then in 2011, 2010. If they had a license plate of the Chevy Avalanche, you know, he might have been caught many years ago, but he wasn't. But thankfully, uh, the, the genetic genealogy caught up to him. And thank, as you say, thank goodness the evidence was uh, safeguarded to the point where uh, it wasn't degraded. And that's very important when it comes to DNA evidence. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to our podcast, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with count them five different levels. And our fans, our subscribers, our friends, they subscribe to us on our YouTube channel. Folks, this case, um, and we're going to get more into Rex Uriman. Many people want to know, where did he kill these women? We spoke about that last night with Dr. Joni Johnson, doctor of forensic psychology and an expert on serial killers. And what was scary, even to me, a hardened homicide investigator, is that there was a good possibility that he killed them inside his house. Because every time he met with one of these women, and again, painstaking evidence, his wife was out of town. That was ascertained through the burner phones and matching up the times where he had set up meets with the, the victims with the burner phone information and matching that up with his wife being out of the country. So you may ask, how important is a search warrant on his house? Hugely, hugely important. However, let's also realize this happened 12 and a half to 13 years ago. What are the chances that there's evidence still left in the home from that long ago that could match up to these cases? Another thing that is very, very scary, Rex Ewerman is 59 years old. If he committed these crimes in 2010, 2011, he was 46 years old. What did he do before that? Did he just start becoming a serial killer when he was 46 years old? I think not. Dr. Joni, forensic psychologist, serial killer expert, thinks not. The thought of that is very scary. So what is what is, must the police do? 
they must continue investigating. Continue investigating all kinds of... Also, where did Rex Ewerman travel to? What other states did he go to? They got to do a complete rundown of everywhere he's ever traveled in his whole life because there could be bodies in these states connected to him. It came out the other day, he owns 94 guns. 94 guns he owns. Is that a little bit strange? I mean, I'm a retired police officer. I own four guns, you know, and they were all the guns I had uh, based on becoming a police officer. And I'm not, I know there's some of you gun guys out there that are going to say, so what? I love my guns. All right, that's great. I'm just saying, I only I only have four guns. Uh, and again, I'm not a gun buff, but if you want to have 94 guns, uh, there's a second amendment you have the right to. But I still find that a little bit bizarre. So many people want to know. Did he just start doing this in 2010? Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. Oh, no. You know, I was just thinking as you're mentioning that, you know, we've had there's been many cases where uh, a, a person, a middle aged person, a person in the 30s, 40s, 50s or 60s, you know, kills someone, maybe a, a spouse, ex-spouse, ex-boyfriend, present boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, present girlfriend. Quite often times you'll you'll think about is there a life insurance policy? Was there a divorce involved, child custody issues involved? And, and that, you know, those are, are outside the norm, but they're, you know, you're like, okay, so there, that happened once. Then that person probably has never killed before. But when you have someone who is engaging with, with prostitutes and killing them, and it's, and you've, you've got four bodies, which means that he put, or three bodies that he's been charged with, uh, you've got them all in shallow graves all uh, tied up with clear duct tape, all put into some sort of camouflage burlap that you'd use like in a duck blind, you know, if you were hunting. Um, that's got to strike fear into people's hearts because um, that seems to be a well thought out, you know, execution plan um, that we, where you do not want, you know, you've thought about how you're going to commit the crime and you thought about how you're going to get away with it which is the second part of the crime is actually getting away with it once you do it. So I think probably the odds are is that he probably committed uh, other kinds of homicides, maybe with prostitutes also um, in, in Long Island, because I doubt he would, he might not have gone to uh, you know, the Bronx or anything. I think he'd probably want to stay in an area where he could get rid of them fairly quickly. But as you say, Billy, you brought up the fact that, you know, he may have done something similar on a business trip. And so you, if, if they find out that he's been to eight different states over the course of 20 years as an architect, you know, those state police uh, people better go through and see if there's any uh, uns unsolved disappearances for young 20 year old uh, prostitutes. But, yeah, that uh, Joni Johnson is absolutely right. This sort of behavior doesn't start. It's not like a one killing of someone you love in a violent, you know, dispute. No, this is pre-planned execution style killings, burying the bodies. That's the sign of a, of a real serial killer. And that probably did not start at age 49. I'd be shocked to start at age 49. 29 might be more like it. 
You know, Mike, a lot of people in the chat want to know, in the homicide vernacular, there's manner of death mm -hmm. and there's cause of death. Right. Now, manner of death is homicide, suicide, natural or accidental. Right. All right. Now, these cases were ruled a homicide, which simply means mm -hmm. death caused by another. Homicide can either be criminal or it can be non-criminal, as in an accident. Mm -hmm. uh, you could actually kill someone accidentally through trying to save their life. So sure. that could still be ruled a homicide. But in this case, they ruled it as a criminal homicide, but they don't know because the bodies were there for 10 or 12 years, the actual cause of death, cause of death, gunshot, strangulation, blunt trauma, mm -hmm. asphyxiation. They can't specifically say that. So if you read the report, it said it says some weird language, death by homicide. Yeah, yeah, that was strange. Because, you know, you're thinking, and as I suspect, I was thinking as when we talked about this yesterday and the day before it came to light, I'm thinking strangulation is type of deal because you're in intimate with someone. And I'm thinking if you strangle somebody, they're going to have, if there's enough tissue left, you're going to have a broken hyoid bone. If their eyes are still in their head when you when the body is found, I don't mean to be graphic, but there's going to be a lot of blood in their eyes because their eyes, all the capillaries will be bleeding out. But uh, in this kind of case, they've been uh, un under the sand and in, in the wild, out in the elements for a number of years. Um, it's You're right. It's going to be very difficult to say how each and every one of them had had that is charged for, and he's been charged in their killing what's the actual manner of death and cause of death is it is there skull fractures you could say okay if there's skull skull fractures they were beaten to death uh, i'm not sure if you could see the hyoid bone broken at this point if it was a strangulation that's that's a that's something that that is very very difficult they'll have to prove that in court um to the jury they just can't say well we we're not sure how the body, how the person was killed. We think it's a homicide. We know it's a person, but we're not sure how. Uh, that's not going to fly. So it's the I, the language is very strange. I was surprised at it. I'm glad that you're surprised at it too. Well, Mike, you know, the, the a defense attorney, I think probably who was appointed to represent him, said, oh, this case is all circumstantial. They're already starting with the circumstantial oh, yeah, yeah. evidence. I do that. Which we know is very powerful evidence. I also wanted to say something. I put this picture, this slide on the screen. Now, that's a good representation of where the bodies were found. Yeah. What do you think a body found along the ocean, which is, I mean, as far as decomposition, is probably one of the fastest type of climates, moisture, humidity. Mm -hmm. How about, you know, again, not, not to be graphic, animals picking mm -hmm. and eating at the bodies 10 and 12 the fact that any evidence was recovered from these bodies is unbelievable and the fact that it was preserved is quite astonishing so i want to get to some of the things that we spoke about last night with dr joni and well some of the things that really give her pause and one of the things she said is the psycho psychopathy. I'm glad I learned how to pronounce that word. That's a hard one for me. Psychopathy. <laughs> um, he is what's known as a sexual sadistic serial killer. 
And according to Dr. Joni, those are the most dangerous serial killers there are because they have no conscience. And they like, they get off on inflicting pain and seeing others suffer. And that is what Fat Rex here is. He's a sadistic, a psychosexual sadistic serial killer. And he fits into that category as one of the most dangerous. And while I'm on a roll here, there's two things that we spoke about last night with Dr. Joni, and that's modus operandi. And a lot of you people in law enforcement know exactly what that is. Method of operation. How does he do it? Well, his, his method of operation, his mode of operation, was using a burner phone, calling a sex worker, setting up a meeting, driving to that location. We don't know his entire modus operandi because we don't know where he actually inflicted the killings. Another thing that I will mention, and it's very important, is something called signature, because signature may be one of the ways that he is, in fact, the evidence was recovered and, and will tie these cases together. And what I'm specifically speaking about is the burlap bags right. that the body is, that is a signature. Mm -hmm. unique to him three of the bodies at least had maybe all four of them but they're referring now to the gilgo four had these burlap bags and around and the duct tape and tape that he taped the bodies with one of the things that we know as as cops as investigators we would see duct tape used quite a lot in what we used to be referred to as home invasions mm -hmm. where they would duct tape the victims but guess what duct tape is great for collecting the fingerprints on the sticky side of the perpetrator that doesn't realize, oh, it got stuck to my finger, left a beautiful fingerprint right in the duct tape. So in this instance, the duct tape, or well, I'm not sure it was 100% duct tape, it was tape, it retained either his hair or the hair from his wife that now, 12 years later, can be identified through the advancements in science to indirectly identify a perpetrator in this case. Unbelievable. Yeah, Billy, that uh, I was thinking that uh, when I was reading the 30 pages, you know, that, that burlap, that, that um, camouflage burlap that uh, the ADA tyranny was mentioning yesterday, um, that really is, is, uh, is fantastic because it's, it's all four or four of them have the similar burlap and he he did he he was comfortable, and I guess that's a wonderful thing for, for law enforcement is he was actually comfortable in the manner in which he disposed of the bodies. He was so comfortable he did it four he did it four times, and therefore it's the, the uniqueness stands out. If one of the bodies had been left on the beach, another body had been left up you know in the Adirondack Mountains in New York, you know three hundred miles away, another body was uh, in, in a dumpster in. Um, in New Jersey, you know, it, it'd be hard to track or, or connect all four together. But this was his own little personal graveyard. And he felt very comfortable in a particular operation, wrapping them up, taping them, wrapping them in the burlap, digging probably a shallow grave, putting them in it, covering it over with sand. Boom, 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 boom in a row. So therefore, it makes it uh, much more plausible through circumstances, circumstantial evidence to say this is more likely 
the result of one person's actions, not four separate, you know, uh, killers deciding, oh, that looks like a good sand dune. We're going to put the uh, uh, I'm going to put my one victim there. And what's the chances of anybody else actually having that burlap? Um, as a police officer and a detective at, a, at that crime scene, you would love to be in his home to see if there is any leftover pieces of burlap that actually match that pattern in his basement. Maybe at one point he was a hunter and he would go out in the woods, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in a meadow or something and do duck hunting. And if that's the case, if there's even a little bit of, of that piece of uh, burlap left, that pattern, boom, that's excellent. That's another piece of circumstantial evidence. So that signature, it was his weakness because he was so used to it. He liked it. He did it quickly. He was comfortable with it. And that may be really part a good part of his undoing in this case, because it really shows that there's really one person and one person only. He wasn't acting in concert with anybody else. You know, the part of it that is really the, one of the most disturbing parts, and of course, Dr. Joni Johnson spoke to this last night, and that is the psychosexual sadistic part. And how he demonstrated that was he used the actual phones of two of the victims to call their families with the phones of their loved ones to taunt the family yeah. and to describe to them exactly. In fact, it was uh, Brainard Barnes and Bartholomew are the two girls who he retained their cell phones after he murdered them and taunted their families by making calls to them and describing to them what he did to their loved ones and how they're dead so and how he was going to go after them that is a sadistic psychosexual sadistic person which is extremely extremely dangerous calling the families in fact on his computer he was still checking on the families of the victims yes and he was also searching the gilgo beach task force what were they looking at how could they track this killer? So all of these things are, show premeditation and just an evil, evil guy. And, that, you know, that's why one of the things when the district attorney, Tierney, was laying out all the evidence he had, I was just like, I wish he wouldn't do this. Because now all of the YouTube conspiracy theorists, uh, all these people that are saying, oh, he had an accomplice, all this other stuff. He's laying it, that all out there for the conspiracy theorists, and I wish he would have just kept to the facts and not the details of how they came upon this individual. Yeah, Billy, um, the, uh, the idea that he probably enjoys the ability to dominate some woman uh, who's helpless, he's much bigger than twice as the size of any ordinary guy, and and these girls are vulnerable and he's doing it against the backdrop of a, of a sexual act and he's going to kill them and he knows he's going to kill them. You know, that probably stems back, goes back many, many decades in his life. And I really would like to speak if I'm any, a member of that task force to people he knew, people who knew him in high school, maybe any girls that he'd spoken to in high school 
maybe his former wife or anybody like that to see was, did he have any sort of really weird uh, domination kind of uh, actions uh, in a sec in a sexual setting, you know, previously, I don't mean to be graphic, um, but uh, because this thing seems to be something that probably just didn't develop, you know, in the past couple of years. And um Prob my guess is probably yes. Um, he's got that that type of personality that he wants to. It, it, I even saw a video of him speaking uh, about his his uh, skill as an architect, and he said, "When people can't accomplish things, I get I get called in and I accomplish them as an architect." He he's a control freak, and I'm just thinking as we're talking about the crime scene. I'm hoping. You know, that there's a possibility that there is a hair left from one of those girls in his home. He probably vacuumed up the place, I'm sure. But I'm hoping there's some fluid or something that could you could test and some carpeting somewhere. I'm hoping just to actually place uh, a, one of those poor ladies in his home, because I don't think he took them to a hotel or motel. You know. No, I think there's a good possibility. We discussed this last night with yeah. Dr. Joni Johnson. She felt the same thing. Let me play a little bit more of this. So what do you know about the phone data um, that they were able to uh, get a hold of and how new technology uh, helped them or helped investigators uh, you know, track this man? You know, without getting into, you know, the specifics of the technology, because some of that, um, you know, is, is still uh, uh, protected, uh, you know, for law enforcement use. Um, you know, they, what they're able to do is they're able to actually go into the data uh, that is, that you have in the system, either whether with your carrier and then determine where that phone was last used and who that phone might have been talking to, but also to where that other phone was used. Also then using all the data from the phone company, they're able then to connect at times, depending on um, uh, other in information and intelligence, what burner phones were actually used together. So they may have been talking on one burner phone at this point and on a different burner phone at another time and using technology and, and, and a lot of the information that's out there, they're able then to connect those burner phones and use that to get back to the actual uh, subject that they were looking for. So what was the biggest challenge for you um, when you were on this case to just making headway um, with all the bureaucracy, the politics, and, and still trying to stay focused on finding a killer or killers at this time. Yeah, you know, I, I was the uh, special agent in charge at the time. So, you know, I oversaw the investigation. Uh, but speaking with, you know, the agents and the law enforcement teams that were working this case out in Long Island, in our Long Island resident agency, um, you know, uh, it, it was just a, a complete breakdown in communication uh, with, the, um, with the local law enforcement that was out there at the time. Things got much better uh, as you know, later on, but during the time uh, of this, um, you know, of this investigation, basically from around, you know, uh, um, uh, 2010 to probably uh, 2015, 2016, uh, it, it, it was hampered because, um, you know, both the Suffolk County Police Department and the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office uh, 
even though they said that they were cooperating with uh, the FBI and other law enforcement, in actuality, they were not. Uh, it was being run by uh, individuals who, um, since that time, have been uh, um, arrested, convicted, and either are currently in jail or um, uh, uh, have done their jail time for, for uh, crimes not related to this case. But because of that, it really hampered um, the ability of a task force mentality, where you're able to bring in all the different agencies, their expertises, their specialities, and put them together to focus on catching a serial killer. Do you think that this arrest could help lead to what um, investigators have said may be other uh, killers that are still out there because there were more than four murders during this time, right? It was like a total of 10 bodies where still, they were still unsolved murders. So how do you see this helping in these other investigations that are ongoing? Yeah, this is not the end of the investigation. We're probably uh, right in the middle of it, uh, uh, to be quite frank, because you do have to find um, who else was involved in this. Uh, you know, maybe the subject uh, did do these four or charged with three homicides, but actually, if you read the indictment, it talks about four, uh, four murders. Um, did he do these four murders by himself, or did he have help? And they're still going to be looking into that. And then was he involved in the other murders in some other capacity? It shows that uh, in the indictment that he was having ongoing uh, communications and, and, and uh, uh, um, Internet searches uh, and other potential um, uh, uh, lines of communication with people who may have been either committing these crimes or maybe he was continuing on and committing these crimes as well as other crimes. Again, this is just, we're basically in the middle. There's a lot more to do on this case and a lot more for law enforcement to follow up on. All right, we'll stay on top of it. Richard, thanks. Amazing. Again, as we said, that this case is, uh, is not over with. And to think that he just started committing uh, these murders at the age of 46 is, is a stretch. I think that uh, as they really bear down and continue to investigate on this case, I think they're going to find, unfortunately, that he committed more uh, murders. Yeah, Billy, it would be really, as you say, a stretch if this these were the only four. Um, there's probably more. I don't think he would start at that age. He probably has a rage. He's a control freak. He probably has a rage against uh, women, and he wants to dominate them and abuse them and violate them and then kill them because it's a, it's a big power trip for him. Yeah, I would imagine that they are going to continue to look. Some of these other bodies and body parts they've talked about date back to the 1990s. I'm not so sure about because of the locations and the type of bodies they found, but um, I would expect that there's going to be, they're going to uncover more uh, in the future. And, um, you know, the problem is if you uncover a body, can you, is there enough evidence to then go back and see, uh, like using the same technology, uh, if you have the DNA evidence, can you get the cell phone technology and kind of use that investigative, those investigative tools to see if you could tie him to another body you might find. Um, we're not sure. Again, yeah, as this gentleman, FBI agent, agent in charge said, you're in the middle of the investigation. There's a lot more to go. And probably 
uh, it's going to be at least another couple of years before that task force is disbanded. You know, no doubt, I think the catalyst for solving this case was, um, again, when Rodney Harrison became the Suffolk County Police Commissioner, and he put together this task force of the Suffolk County Police, the FBI, the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department, and the New York State Police, and the West, excuse me, the Suffolk County DA's office. That was the catalyst of getting this together, putting all these investigative minds together with one goal, and that was to solve this case. And, you know, they they accomplished tremendous things in a short period of time when all the years prior, it doesn't seem that, you know, you heard the FBI agent talking about how there wasn't cooperation with the Westchester, Westchester Suffolk County Police and with the Suffolk County DA's office. They didn't bring the FBI on board. So that's one of the things that caused this to take a lot longer and that maybe should have. Architect who ran a company called RH Consultants and Associates. How are you doing? Good to see you. YouTuber Antoine Amira, who runs a page called Bonjour Realty, interviewed Hurman about his work a year ago. What has this job uh, taught you about yourself? I think it's taught me more about how to understand people. I'm really what stood out is his. Uh, his attention to details. He was very knowledgeable, very detail-oriented. Amira told us Hurman had a distinct physical presence. Intimidating, no. Imposing, uh, yes, very, very imposing. He is ahead of both me, a very large person. I still remember uh, his handshake when we met. Very strong. What? We can tell you right now that police and investigators have been here for per perhaps about 18 hours. How long will they be here? Well, we're told as long as it takes to gather as much evidence as possible. We're live in Massapequa Park. Dick Brennan, CBS. So just uh, again, uh, this case is going to take as long as it takes. They're not going to take any shortcuts. They're going to cross the T's. They're going to dot their eyes. You know, I don't think people fully understand what's involved in these investigations and just even the electronic part, the electronic evidence part of this, the cell phone evidence, you need people that are skilled in that area. You just can't have someone say, gee, I'd like to investigate a cell phone. You need people that are really skilled in that area of investigation. In the NYPD, we have a unit called TARU, Technical Assistance Response Unit, and there are phone people there are experts. The FBI probably has experts as good or better than our Taru. I know they have equipment that rivals probably the best equipment in the world. In fact, you heard that FBI agent in charge, he didn't even want to tell how they accomplished what they did because it's top secret to be able to do that. And again, you don't want the other, you don't want the criminals out there knowing, oh, if you do that, we can catch you because we know. We know how to do this. And again, as I said, when the press conference occurred and he was just spitting forth all of this minutiae of the case, I was cringing. Yeah. Yeah, Billy, um, I remember years ago, uh, people criticized, I think it was CSI show, for showing perpetrators covering up their crimes, you know, destroying blood evidence with Clorox and, and things like that. And yeah, it's like, oh, please, you know, don't 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 give the per possible perpetrators who watch TV also 
Don't give them any ideas about cleaning up the crime scene after themselves. You know, don't don't do that sort of thing. Keep your play your cards close to your vest uh, because, um, you know, the mistakes that they make, the less sophisticated they are, the more mistakes they're going to make, the more mistakes they're going to make, the, the better it is, the easier it is for detectives to catch them. But uh, the smarter the 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 uh, perpetrator, the longer it's going to take. Herman, luckily, he was he was smart and stupid at the same time. He had burner phones, but then for some really strange reason, he was trying to contact the families. That's like a huge, huge, uh, you know, circumstantial evidence of guilt because you can electronically connect him to that burner phone. You can connect that burner phone to the families, uh, to the uh, member of the family. He kept their phone. So he was bright and stupid at the same time. Thankfully, he was stupid enough. And it, it, may, it gave a clear electronic pathway to, uh, uh, you know, capture him. Just think about it. When you read this 30 pages, if you take out all of that evidence, you have DNA. And it really comes down to one hair strand. And then that got them suspicious, along with other things, got them suspicious. And then they followed him and got the pizza crust. But if it wasn't for that single hair strand, you know, this, this case might not, might, might not be solved at this point. It might, they might still be investigating. So that's and again, science, science has just made such advancements. Let me do this quick commercial. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired member of the service, a retired NYPD police officer who became an attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com or go on his website jmurray-law.com. Joe is a fantastic attorney and a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast. You know, I also wanted to say uh, about Rex Uerman, um, the traits that made him perhaps good at his job, attention to detail, um, also probably made him difficult to catch as a serial killer. Because when I say premeditated, all of these things were premeditated and part of his modus operandi, calling, of course, using burner phones and calling sex workers. And the important thing about these burner phones and the reason people use them is they're very difficult to trace because you don't have to give your name when you buy this number. The burner phone, there's a number, but you don't, it doesn't come back to you. But one thing it can't trick, and that's the cell sites that it hits when right. the person in possession makes these calls. And that became very, very prominent evidence also that the police saw that all of these girls, what they had in common were phone calls from this burner phone, or there was multiple burner phones, but guess what the commonality was. The commonality was that they hit cell sites in Massapequa Park, Long Island, and in Manhattan. And once, of course, once they found out where Rex Harriman, his, excuse me, his where his office was, all of this made sense. They could put all of this together, but it, do, it doesn't make sense right away. Like where, why is he making these calls in Manhattan? Why is the phone 
pinging in Massapequa until you identify a location. And then, of course, a person, none of that really makes that much sense. Yeah, he was uh, tremendously smart and attentive to detail, like you say, but he had a few, uh, you know, blind spots. That sh the uh, incident with the uh, with the Chevy Avalanche, that was huge because once you once you started getting the data and you start the cell phone data, and you start going back and reviewing all of the old, you know, what we call DD fives, Detective Division, you know, form number five. You, know, you start going back over that and you see witness statements that there was a Chevy Avalanche involved, and you, you run the um, that gives you a fat, fantastic clue. You run the, uh, the the name of the suspect, and you find out that he previously owned a Chevy, a Chevy Avalanche, an early model Chevy Avalanche. So he was bright, and and but uh, luckily, since since you know uh, he's he's uh, didn't understand, like you say, the cell tower technology, and he made that foolish mistake with his own car, with his own truck. Thank goodness for that, because that helped a great deal. And again, like you say, you can't use a cell phone without it pinging off a cell tower. No matter how you try to hide it, it has to ping off a cell tower near the location where you're at. And that's important. Places you would have three women. Time. And it's the I'm sorry, Mike. I, I oh, thought no. you were. Prime suspect of another victim whose bodies were first discovered on Long Island in 2010. The women, all sex workers, were found wrapped in burlap bags. Shannon Gilbert was among those who went missing after making this. You know, I just want to say as per Shannon Gilbert, they don't know right now or they haven't released it right now whether in fact he is a suspect in her in her case. Right. There was uh, other theories in regards to her years ago. I don't know if this group, this task force, uh, is buying into those theories or they think that he potentially is involved in this. There's, there's a whole other story with this. In fact, she makes a 911 call. She was at a call at a very specific person's home, uh, and then she just disappears, and they do find her body around that location. His desperate call to 911. <laughs> In all, police found the remains of 11 people in the area of Gilgo Beach, including a toddler. The killings terrorized residents around 40 miles from New York City for more than a decade. To wake up and find out that that's where he lived, it's shocking. On his website, Hewerman posted this interview that he gave last year, bragging about his work in New York City for 35 years. And a job that should have been routine yeah. suddenly becomes not routine. Yeah. I get the phone call. In 2020, Melissa Can spoke to 48 Hours correspondent Aaron Moriarty about the day her sister, Maureen Brannard Barnes, was discovered. What I want most is answers and justice. And I also want that the world to know, like, my sister mattered. Hewerman pleaded not guilty today. Based on the heinous nature of these crimes, he's being held without bail. His next court date is August 1st. Catherine. Meg Oliver, thank you for your reporting. Let's bring in Mary Ellen O'Toole. She's a retired FBI special agent and the director of the forensic science program at George Mason University. So let's talk about the big difference first that technology made in this case. Yeah, it's, it's incredible how far we've come in terms of forensic science. Um, so we've got um, incredible advances in DNA. 
um, and then in cell phones. So that really made a difference in this case. And what's so interesting is that this offender committed these murders 10 years ago, thinking that um, none of this would have become significant and that he probably committed the perfect crime. And the, the issue is that he left forensic evidence behind. We just needed to wait for the technology to catch right. up. Yeah. Amazed. That's amazing, right? right? He left forensic evidence behind, but you know something? 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we couldn't identify that forensic evidence. And as we said earlier on, the fact that it was secured and protected and stored in a location that made it testable years later is a real thumbs up to law enforcement. I'm, I'm glad you made that point. Look, some of this DNA evidence they're using is kind of very new, very revolutionary. Has it been tested in court? Yes, it has, but it will be really tested in this case. And so that's what the defense will, will um, bring to the case is all the questions about how is it collected, how is it processed, how is it analyzed, how is it interpreted, what are the credentials of the people who did all of that work. So it's it's not just the analysis itself, it will be a whole assortment of questions that the defense will pose to each one of the experts that come into that courtroom. You know, based on your decades of criminal investigative experience, does this suspect fit the serial killer profile? I get that question a lot, and I will say this. What we do know about most serial sexual killers, because his motivation was sexual, is that most have a psychopathic personality. The old term was sociopath. So these are people without a conscience. These are people with no remorse, but they tend to be glib and charming when you meet them, and there, there are um, other traits and characteristics of a psychopath. So beyond that, though, they kill differently. They use different weapons. Um, they physically look very different. Most are, because they are glib and charming, fly under the radar screen. Um, people, their neighbors think they're nice guys. But as you dig deeper into their pathology, they, there's uh, large differences between them. So there's not a single profile of a serial sexual killer. You know, based on the evidence that's publicly available, what are some of the possible motives? Well, sexual is, is the motive here. He was killing for sexual purposes. And this sounds, um, I mean, this is very dark, but when serial killers are strangling, stabbing, shooting their victims, they're sexually aroused by it. Mm. So their motivation is for sexual arousal. And in this case, I think we could even consider that sexual sadism could have been a part of that. What is sexual sadism? It is a paraphilic behavior, but the offender is sexually aroused by the victim's response to the infliction of physical or emotional pain. Wow, they're, they're suffering. So that's terrible. It is, and, and we see that in the phone calls that he's made to the victim's family, which probably caused him to be aroused in the same way as he heard the family's pain on the other end of the phone. Horrific, horrific. And I think we, we brought that up before. But, you know, one of the, and I just want to mention it before we uh, we end today's show, is that very recently, on July 3rd, he uh, followed some girl inside a park in Massapequa. And this was according to the New York Post. Uh, in fact, I, can, I have the article here. Uh, 
A young Long Island woman revealed Friday that she had a disturbing encounter recently with Gilgo Beach murder suspect Rex Uerman earlier this month in a park and that she was so shaken that she filed a police report. Allie, they only identify her as Allie, 25, who declined to provide her last name, said she was shocked to see the man nabbed in the killings was the same creep who she encountered on July 3rd in Brady Park, which is <clears throat> just a few minutes' drive from Human's home on First Avenue in Massapequa Park. Pretty scary. Billy, she did a, a wonderful service to people by calling <coughs> 911 and making a report, memorializing her experiences, you know, so quickly. Um, she realized, you know, we talked about this before, the gift of fear. The, the fear is a primeval, you know, feeling you get that we've inherited throughout the from caveman days that alerts you to some sort of danger. You can't quite put your finger on it, but the hairs stand up in the back of your neck and you get nervous. You got to listen to that fear inside your head. And she did. She called 911. Whatever he did or said that caused her to do that, it was um, it was a wonderful thing that she did because it shows. Um, you know, to the world that this guy, there's, there's, this isn't uh, some, some big misunderstanding. He is a very disturbed person and he is a very scary person. And even someone just in a park picks up on his vibe very quickly. And thank God, goodness, she did that. You know, Mike, that's why in, uh, with this will we'll end. Um, that leads me to believe he was still actively applying his trade, if you could put it that way, yeah. that he was still actively a dangerous, dangerous man, a serial killer. And what what were his intentions, you know? Because mm -hmm. he got close to this girl, started asking her all kinds of questions. What's your name? Did he mean to lure her into his car and take her to a place where he could do what he does? Very scary to think that that's still occurring. Mike, your final thoughts would have been on almost an hour and 20 okay. minutes. So, Final thoughts. Congratulations to the, uh, to, to the uh, task force. They did a fabulous job. And um, the, the t DNA technology and the cell phone technology, like we've seen in the Kohlberger case, you know, we didn't have these technologies 20 years ago, 15 years ago, in some cases, 10 years ago. We got them now. And that's fantastic. And uh, a person who's caused all kinds of grief and heartache for everyone on Long Island. This serial killer, uh, you know, appears to be, the case appears to be solved. The suspect is behind bars. That's a great thing. So everyone should just say, you know, just think uh, very highly and congratulate any officer you see and say, you know, thank you for serving the public because this is the kind of work that nobody really understands and nobody sees. It's not glamorous. It's just hard work day after day, and they should be congratulated for what they did. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Olivia, thank you for the $10 super sticker. Thanks for covering this and the Moscow ID killings of the four college students. That's my alma mater, and I found you guys then and have been following the case with all the true crime shows. Olivia, thank you very much. Um, we try to cover these cases with as much um, empathy as possible to realizing that there are real victims in these cases and to, to be sensitive to that. And uh, 
we're going to stay with this case. I'm sure this is not the end of what you're going to hear in this case. Um, I want to thank everyone, uh, all of our fans, our subscribers, Police Off the Cuff, just recently uh, crossed a, a huge plateau for us, uh, which is the 50,000 subscriber. Uh, what would you call that? The plateau, the, uh, the threshold. milestone, yeah. the threshold, the milestone. And I want to thank all you folks that enable us to do that. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. Good night. Good show. I thought it was a it was a really good fucking show. Good you know, show. it's um it just you know we covered all the points. It's amazing how you how you can do it. Uh these motherfuckers already. I gotta challenge it again. It's unbelievable. Unfucking believable. Uh what, what can I do? There's nothing I can do about it. As much as we even tried not to talk about the juicy shit. And Duty Ron told me he did the show the other night and he talked about everything. The fucking sex, the this, the that, and they didn't fucking demonetize him. Oh, Lord. That's dispiriting. It is, but, you know, I still just got to keep plugging, moving forward. And, uh, you know, that's all you can do. Well, now you got to shoot for 75,000. My goal for 2023, I shot even higher. I wanted 100,000. <laughs> Good. So if I, if I can double, you know, look, it could happen. You get yeah. that one case. That's what happened to Duty Run. Yeah. You get that one case that just takes off. Uh, and that's what he had with Barbara Butcher. Now, did he have, did he do a show on his cell phone? From the beach, or did he have like a little command post that he said? Oh no, up? he he did it from his cell phone. Wow. Okay. He used a gimbal. That's what I use. Okay. I put my cell phone on a gimbal. Because <laughs> you have to have a microphone or else the sound will suck. Right, right. H-A-U-E-R-H-A-U-I always spell it wrong. H-A-U-E-R. E-R. And then... Yeah, it's... You know, there's already... You get the people... There was one asshole in the chat talking about he didn't like the way the police got the evidence. I was like, dude, shut the fuck up. I didn't want to hear you, you know? Like, but, dude, if you're so concerned about your... um. Hang on a second.